And our gospel lesson is from John in the 18th chapter. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest have handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? After he'd said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case with him. The word of the Lord. In the name of the one holy and undivided Trinity. Amen. I am so glad to be with you all today on this Sunday that all of our partnered churches are sharing the word together because we have this great thing in common. We all love downtown. We serve, we walk, we drive down here. We give ourselves to it in relationship. And I have this very unique job. I was hired to be the priest at St. Paul's for downtown. So I live downtown on purpose, and I walk to work sometimes. Downtown is a great place because you encounter people from all walks of life, the poor and the homeless, the business, the powerful, government officials, tourists of all stripes from all over the world. But there is one kind of person I have never, ever encountered downtown. I have never met any royalty. Not one, not one prince or duke or duchess, and definitely no kings. Now, the people at St. Paul's will be glad to tell you that in 1890-something, the Prince of Wales came and sat in a pew and signed the book. But I think that was a scheduled visit. He wasn't just strolling around Richmond. To have kings come around is so far from my imagination that this holiday kind of doesn't make sense. Kings, I don't know, got the king of comedy, the king of rap. There's also the infection of pretty princesses invading all of the preteen girls in the world. Lots of pink and ruffle, but no royalty. No day in and day out kingship. It doesn't quite make sense, especially when you Hold these two kings together. King Jesus. I love that spiritual. Listening when you pray. That one I kind of get, but then we've got David. King David reading out his sort of last words, his will and testament. And they are really, really up there. He's giving the oracle of God and everything he's ever done has been approved of. King David, who has, let's just say, a slightly spotty record He had a few dalliances. The tabloids would have been all over him at the time. And yet, his last words, of words of such approval, 
such affirmation and affection. It kind of seems like maybe he's stretching the truth a little. Where does he get off? If he were a modern person, this would be his Instagram photo. Shiny, perfect, beautiful house. We don't see the mess behind. But then someone brought up to me that perhaps it's not just about him, the king, because you can't have a king without a kingdom. Is there something more to David's poetry, this last psalm he writes of great praise and affirmation? Well, maybe it's something about the very first song at the beginning of the book. Go past 2 Samuel into 1 Samuel, and it too starts with a great big song, a psalm, a statement of praise, and it's over the top and it's big. And it didn't come from a king, it didn't come from some big guy with a lot of power. It came from a woman. It came from a simple woman named Hannah. And Hannah prayed in what is technically a psalm. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in God. She's starting the beginning of this book of the way we want to think about kings. She said, my mouth derides my enemies because my heart rejoices in victory. There's something about these great songs, these psalms, these poems that points us to the king overall, but also to the people of the kingdom. And so David, at the end of his career, was wrapping up his spotty record. But he'd turned around. He'd asked for forgiveness, for punishment sometimes. He'd asked for humility. And in the end, it wasn't quite all about him. It was also about what Hannah had prayed for, that the Lord makes the poor rich. He brings down the low and exalts them. He raises them up to make them sit with princes, inheriting a seat of honor. These big wishes for all of these little people that would follow God into God's kingdom. They had a long way to go in transformation from wandering nomads and tribal people to people who would focus all their thoughts, all their energy, all their mind on a king. The king, the one above. Thinking about it that way made me cut David a little slack. He's telling the end of a story and singing a song that's the end of the song that was first sung for him. It made it make a little more sense when you think about Jesus standing before Pilate. He's giving a testimony, but his testimony is also the end of a song that began way back in the beginning of John, sung by a teenage girl, pregnant. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, she's saying. Mary, too, started a great song, a hope of the kingdom, where the poor would be lifted up, the mighty would be brought low, and we would all exalt and rejoice in the Savior. Boy, these women had something to say about the future, the children in their care, and the way that they would guide all the people around them into the kingship, into the love and knowledge of God. Mary, you can get the mother of Jesus praying and hoping for something immediate, but Hannah, boy, that's someone two generations back 
and your grandmother's generation, can you imagine singing a song of prayer and praise for you? My mom would call that, yes, that's been prayed for and prayed up. To have someone that far back and long ago singing hope for you and for your people, to hold fast, and at the end of the life that you've come to live, you sing it too. Who taught you to sing? Early this morning, there was that great choir, and they were all sitting in a little row, rehearsing that song very meticulously. They were learning to speak those words to articulate them. That is my memory of learning to sing in a Presbyterian church in Charlotte, North Carolina, at First United Presbyterian. And our choir director, when I was that size, was this size, Dr. Louise Harris. Everybody at that church was a doctor of some kind. They were all attached to Johnson C. Smith University. I just thought every church had a university attached. And all the little ladies and old men were old professors. Dr. Harris, as my mother said, was born old. <laughs> she was always old. She's long gone, but we just remember her as a tiny woman. And she was a doctor of an old subject, elocution. She's a doctor of elocution. And so in the 80s, as she taught the young preteens how to sing spirituals in our all-African-American church, she wanted us to speak them properly because we were paying homage for the 150 years of people who came out of slavery to start that church. It had been on a farm, and it was now in the middle of Charlotte. For a while, it was in the middle of a ghetto. Now it's in the middle of bustling downtown. But these songs she taught us were very old and she wanted us to sing them properly. Now, I don't know about you, but my memory of growing up Presbyterian in the South was that all the other kids were kind of Baptist, and they had gospel music, and they could clap. We did not have that. <laughs> we, I could not clap. I still can't really. We didn't have all that, but we had this other type of song, this song that came from old ancestors and old roots. And we used to make fun of her, because she would tell us, now children, she rolled her R's, repeat after me, I ain't a, I ain't a, gonna let nobody turn me around. You had to say it properly. These songs from people who might have worked in fields, had forced labor in houses. Ain't a gonna let nobody turn me around. King Jesus is a listening Listening when we pray. This exaggerated prayer stuck in my mind. He's got power in his hands and he's taking me away. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. And we sang the song. I'm sure it wasn't beautiful, but it was great because small people sing and it's always cute. And yet it stuck with me her breathing into it, her praying into it. No one's going to turn me around. This was my end of the bookend of prayers for 150 years of people who came out of oppression. No one will turn them around, and they're waiting for King Jesus. That's the kind of kingship I could understand. Because there were other types of stories, other types of superheroes, other types of would-be kings 
throughout all generations. You've probably heard them. We've all seen them. Your little kids will turn on the TV and see superheroes. They fight against the bad guy. They repress their negative energy. In the end, violence wins. Popeye knocks Bluto to the moon. It all seems pretty innocent. But it all seems like, well, violence is inevitable. We saw the Terminator or Schwarzenegger, people who ride in wheels of glory or go out in a dusting blaze of bullets. Inevitable, right? They're their own strong man. They're a hero, like a king. But that's not quite what the song that I heard reminded me of. And hopefully it's not quite what the song you heard reminded you of. That nothing will turn you around. That the power doesn't come from a big fat gun or blaze of glory, but waiting on King Jesus, listening when we pray. It's kind of weird to think that waiting and listening is a type of power. But I learned that in the children's choir. It stuck with me. It's hard to think of that as power, as anything worth holding on to. When the world is full of scary things and big people and power and might, we're supposed to be more afraid of refugees that might come to our doors than we are of trusting in the power of Jesus. We're supposed to be more afraid of crime so that we move way out far away and live in a gated community. But there's a King Jesus listening when we pray. We're supposed to be afraid of losing our jobs, that everyone's in competition for everything, that the minute Thanksgiving's over, everyone will tell us we're not enough and we've got to go buy more. We're not enough, according to this other narrative. But then I remember that little song. He's got power in his hands. King Jesus is listening. If you breathe into it, trust it long enough, perhaps that prayer sinks in. And it's not quite just about you or I. It's also about those who first sang it and those who sang the songs before them. King Jesus is listening when we pray. This gospel has Pilate questioning Jesus, telling him we can't even figure out what truth is anymore, throwing all the rules out. And Jesus is calm. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't even really answer back. There's something else going on in his type of kingdom that isn't quite about right answers. And it's not really about heavenly clouds either. Like when we're dead, everything's all right. There's a power and breathing into and sitting through oppression, through confusion, through fear. That's what the song is teaching us. That's what Mary was singing and what Hannah was singing. That tells us redemptive violence isn't the only answer. There's myths, there's big myths and stories, but we know another story, we heard another song. That miscarriages of justice, that an escalating prison population aren't the only way. There's another way beyond the shams of injustice. If we listen to that song, there's something about the way we've learned, the way I learned from the little tiny Miss Harris, 
that people could go a long time. They could suffer a great deal and be transformed into the will and love and work of Jesus. It's the transformation that dozens of people through the civil rights movement had, that people in jails for centuries had. Gandhi even expressed this idea that in the midst of being pinned down or being afraid or being terrorized even, there is something in the kingdom that is greater. And if we listen, it will listen back to us. It's God's breath, breathing in, breathing out. Do you hear that song? Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. King Jesus is a listening when we pray. As Barbara Brown Taylor said, sons and daughters of God have been afraid a long time, killed in every generation. There have been holy wars and inquisitions, concentration camps and prison cells. It was Cape Town and Memphis, El Salvador and Alabama, and I would add now Paris and Beirut. The charges against these holy children run the gamut. There's treason and blasphemy, poverty and ignorance. There's just a long list, but the same list of charges was levied against Jesus. And Jesus offered himself up, a quiet mirror of prayer and strength. He transformed fear into something else. He smashed evil and hatred in every way possible. And now we see it. Now we can hear the song that may be our bookend of the book. So that when it comes to write down on our passage, when our little ones coming after us learn to sing, that they too might sing different words, but still feel the same thing. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. King Jesus is listening for you to pray. Amen.